0: Well, um, just uh, this morning, um, I want to encourage you, if you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Um, but today is the 39th observance of Sanctity Life Sunday. And on January 13th, 1984, President Reagan, in response to the 11th anniversary of Roe v. Wade and the lesser-known Doe v. Bolton, which was the... Uh, the laws in Georgia, which at the time were preventing abortion. Um, In response to those decisions, President Reagan signed this proclamation for the Sanctity of Life Sunday, stating, Since 1973, more than 15 million unborn children, a number which today the Guttmacher Institute reports has risen to uh, 63,459,781 infants, and that number ended at the end of 2017. So we've had an additional 6 years beyond this. But as of 2017, the Guttmacher Institute, which is works in tandem with the Center for Disease Control, and the Guttmacher Institute rather than relying on voluntary reporting actually reports directly from abortion clinics themselves. Over 63 million as of 2017 have died in legalized abortions a tragedy of stunning dimensions that stands in sad contrast to our belief that each life is sacred amazingly ronald reagan went on to share at that time in 1984 that that number of 15 million unborn children exceeded the death in all us involved wars throughout history he continues, I call upon the citizens of this blessed land to gather on that day in homes and places of worship to give thanks for the gift of life and to reaffirm our commitment to the dignity of every human being and the sanctity of each human life. Now, why is this important? Well, Romans 1, 18 through 21 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. There was a direct correlation between thankfulness to God and the blindness of man's heart. That when we lose our thankfulness towards God, we begin to become blind towards the things of God. And so while legal policies which honor life should be pursued, pursued, the answer to valuing the dignity and sanctity of life is not found in the government. It's found in Christ and the ministry of his church. However, if the church is going to minister the gospel as well as bring thanksgiving to God, the giving of believers is actually important. 2 Corinthians 9, 11 through 13 says this, You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. So part of the work of the ministry, yes, giving supports the work of the ministry, And in order for the work of the ministry, the work of the church to go forward, God uses the provision, the giving of those who are his followers to bolster up and support the work of his church, to support the work of the parachurch, those who are a part of the local church who are going out in other areas and actually seeing that work being done. But the other caveat to that is is that giving actually brings thanksgiving to God, and God cares about that. God cares about thanksgiving. And so a lack of thanksgiving produces blindness. On the other hand, he says here that giving, this supportive aspect of the work of God, actually brings and produces thanksgiving. So it may seem funny this morning that we're talking on Sanctity of Life Sunday about giving. But the truth is is that giving actually is a vital act of worship for the church, which actually brings thanksgiving to the Lord. And it causes the gospel of Christ to be seen in unique ways. It's actually a direct response to the flesh, which finds its sufficiency and strength in itself. Hence, the root of blindness in Romans 1 turning away from the creator of God to the created things of God. And keeps us focused on the one who is the giver of life, God Himself which in so doing, from being reminded that he is the giver of life, produces thanksgiving. And so I felt this morning that we would take this little bit of different twist here, this different moment of saying it actually is vital to the work and the ministry of his church. If the church is answer to the world, then we need to be obedient to Christ in these areas and so this morning, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58 through sixteen four, and how to serve God through our giving in response to His redeeming grace. So let's go ahead and stand together. 1 Corinthians 15, the latter part there, the last verse, and then the first four verses of chapter 16. And this is what it says. It says, "'Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain.'" Father, thank you for your word. We do, God, today thank you as the giver of life. And we thank you as the giver of all things. Lord, may our hearts not grow cold to thanksgiving. And may we not grow cold to your work. May we see the joy in being your servants. And setting ourselves, God, in submission to you. Father, the words that are sprinkled upon us today that you promise will not return void. God, may we hear with your ears. May we see with your eyes. Father, may our spirits rest in you. And Lord, may you speak to us clearly this morning. Father, move me to the back and you to the front. And may it be your word that comes forth in power into each of our hearts. May we be transformed, renewed, and refreshed this morning. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So central to this passage this morning is serving Christ through our giving in response to his grace emboldens the work of his church serving christ through our giving in response to his grace emboldens the work of his church giving is a response to his grace that's what it is giving is a response a direct response to his grace now i do want to encourage you that if you're visiting with us for the first time the culture speaks all the time of the church talking about money now It is an aspect of worship and it's something that we will talk about faithfully as the Lord leads or as scripture calls us to. But I would encourage you to also come back next week and to see that that's not all we talk about because it is easy, it is one of the great lies of the enemy to believe that the church is nothing more than a money-hungry monster. The reality is, is God never meant forgiving, to appease money-hungry monsters. It was to actually be an act of worship to the Lord, to support the work of his ministry in response to his grace towards his people. So the topic of giving within the church really has brought tremendous baggage. Whether it be the televangelist who's pleading for money, or churches consistently pleading with people to give, The purpose of giving actually has been lost on many within the church as well as those with outside the church. Someone once said that giving is either talked about too much within the church or too little within the church, and that's true. I can tell you right now that often when I preach on giving, it is an uncomfortable thing for me to do. And a few years back, the Lord really convicted my heart of that. Why would you be ashamed of what I have called you to? And in the same way you talk about gossip or sex or relationships, in the same way you talk about confession of sin or the need for repentance, in the same way that you talk about Christ's return, you should be talking about the act of giving as an act of worship to the Lord in response to His grace. And so 1 Corinthians 15 provides us with the context for our passage this morning, the focus is to live the resurrection life. That's what the passage is talking about. He says in verse 54 and 55 death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of sin is death, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the focus is to live the resurrection life. The reality of Christ's resurrection, the fact that he died for our sin, he took our rightful punishment, he's raised from the dead, overcoming the power of death, and his promised return. And so it is the reality of Christ's resurrection and the promised resurrection of the dead in Christ with the glorification of our bodies upon his return. That's why we live in freedom Is that there is this promised return that Christ has. But more than that, he's overcome the power of death. We often speak of Jesus' resurrection, but the thing we don't talk about is that there will be a day where God resurrects us with him upon his return, restoring us in glorified, perfect bodies without sin, without pain, without suffering. The way that Adam and Eve experienced the garden prior to sin. But freedom, isn't it? And that's the resurrection life. We don't go forward trying to store up treasures in this life. We go forward knowing the life to come. He calls us to a life which reveals the hope, power, and victory of Christ's grace. See, understanding the resurrection of Jesus and the believer should move us to joyful, faithful obedience to him and his work regardless of the cost. The fact that we know that this is not all that there is in life. What is it that you run to in this life? Is this the life that you have, that you want, that everything is going to be sold at the altar of this life? Who is the one that you worship? Or is your life submitted and surrendered to him regardless of the cost? So verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now the key word here to understanding this verse is therefore. And basically Paul's saying, Because of Christ's victory over eternal death in our lives, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. You see, truly understanding God's grace, Christ's death, resurrection, and return, will cause us to serve Him. If we're not serving Him, it's because we've lost sight of God's grace. We've lost sight of what He's done for us. The hope and victory we experience through salvation will motivate us to diligently seek Him and His will. It's one of the reasons that when people ask, "How do I follow Jesus?" or "You know, I've just lost my passion for Christ," it's it's one of the reasons that I'll often direct people right back, as Jesus does in Revelation with the churches. He directs them back to their first love. He says, go back to my grace. Remember what I've done for you. Picture me as the innocent Savior who has humbled himself and know that my sin put you there. My sin put him on the cross. And every single time that my sin went there, a nail pierced his hands and blood was shed for my sake. Oh, and he didn't just deal with dead sin. He gave me new life. And oh, by the way, he didn't just give me new life, but he promised me resurrected life. He didn't just extend my life out. It's the old thing Martin Lloyd Jones who some of you are familiar with the pastor in England. At 24, he was the cardiologist to the queen. By the age of 26, he had decided that he no longer wanted to save lives so that people would only die again. But he wanted to save lives so that people might live again. And he left the work as a cardiologist, the leading person on what was called endocarditis or heart valve infections. He left that work to go pastor in a little tiny church in Wales. People asked him, what are you doing? You're better than this. And his response to them is, it doesn't get better than this. It doesn't get better than serving God. That's a paraphrase. You see, when we understand what Jesus has done for us, it will lead us to serve him. Alan Carr puts it this way. He says, Paul's telling us that the hope we possess is a motivator to spiritual action for God's glory. Being saved, sure and secure, does not mean that we can just sit back and rest. Being saved means we are to get to work for the glory of God. You see, belief always affects our behavior. Believing the right things about Jesus and about the future will cause us to get busy for his glory. According to verse 58, then, serving Christ demands us to be two things. The first is stable and persistent in our faith and convictions. Stable and persistent in our faith and convictions. Notice what it says. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable. The Greek word for steadfast literally means to be sitting in our faith. When our faith is firmly rooted in Christ's truth, we're going to be less likely to be influenced by the world. And our hope must be in Christ for this to happen. In a similar way, the word "immovable" carries with it the idea of being firmly persistent. If we experience the Lord's conviction and leading, we need to respond to this. There are times in our lives, and we hear a message or a sermon on Sunday, and we hear it, and we go, "You know what? I should. I feel convicted to do this." There's lots of conviction, but little persistence. We do that all, don't we, in our lives? I really should not eat that today, right? For me, I've been back on this, this diet, and I gotta tell you, like, you know what it's like to, I mean, we've all experienced that, right? You look at something, you're like, son of a gun. <laughs> and it's that battle, you feel like the dog that's kind of looking at, do I jump in there or not? You know, you're like, and I was like that yesterday. I was walking around, and I'm like, oh, yeah, and I'd take two steps towards it and be like, forget it, you know? <laughs> And you you have to flee from it. you got to get away from the room. And some days you succeed at it, and some days you don't. Right? The idea here is that you experience conviction, and there is persistence, a firm persistence in it. So if I'm going to serve Christ, I'm committed to it. That's what he's saying. In light of his grace, I'm going to persist in serving Christ regardless of the circumstances. See, if we experience the Lord's conviction and leading, we need to respond to this. And so often we allow our convictions to be swayed and moved, compromising the fulfillment of God's will through our lives. When we move off of this idea of persistence and stability in Christ, steadfastness, we actually prevent the will of the Lord. We hinder the will of the Lord. The second aspect that we're demanded To be as servants of Christ in this passage is going above and beyond for Christ with confidence in Him to fulfill His will. Going above and beyond for Christ with confidence in Him to fulfill His will. The word abounding here means to exceed or to overflow. And essentially, it's going to be this idea of going all out for Jesus. John MacArthur explains it this way. He says abounding means to overdo it. It isn't the idea of just doing enough to get by. It's the idea of doing as much as is possible. The way to do the work of the Lord is to do as much as is possible to go to the very extremity of your limits, to go as far as you can, to do as much as you can do, as well as you can do it. So overdo it. That's what he's saying. So as a servant of Christ, it means that we are faithful to it, that we can't outserve God. Now, it doesn't mean that we often, when people hear this passage and we speak of abounding in the work of the Lord, people start thinking, well, think of all the excuses, why? Why not? Why not? Why not? Why not? What he's not saying is, as a servant of the Lord, that you neglect other scriptures, right? He's not saying this, to do this at the detriment of your marriage or the detriment of being a parent. What he is saying is do it all together. Abound in this work and do As a servant of God, serve God as a husband, faithfully and fully. Serve God as a wife, faithfully and fully. Serve God as a parent, faithfully and fully. Serve God as a worker, faithfully and fully. Serve God as a boss, faithfully and fully. Serve God as a student, faithfully and fully. That's what he's getting at. And he's saying, go above and beyond He's saying, hey, come in, give of yourself completely. Don't just stop and go, I've done enough. Ever had that time in your life where you kinda look at the Lord and go, God, I've kinda done enough for you today, can you give me a little bit of a break? He's saying there shouldn't be that within us because Jesus himself went above and beyond. He went above and beyond and what he's saying is is that the reason we go above and beyond is because we are then confident in his ability to do the work and the fulfillment of his ministry. That through us, it's not us doing it, it's him doing it through us. The key here is the phrase, in the Lord. It's an eternal focus rather than an earthly one. If we're following God's word and leading, we will be confident that he will fulfill his purpose. I think where we get in trouble is when we shotgun all over the place. And we stop trying to actually allow the Lord to lead us and do the work and instead trust in ourselves. And so we're like a shotgun blast rather than a a rifle. We're sprayed everywhere. And then we're worn out and we're beat down. But we need to be living in relationship with Jesus. Letting him direct and guide our day, our steps. So Paul makes it clear that serving Christ is a direct response to our understanding of his grace. We're not to serve out of guilt, but rather out of love. So that brings us then to 1 Corinthians 16.1, which is now concerning the collection for the saints. Well, at this time, because of the persecution due to the gospel The church of Jerusalem was in need. Many were experiencing significant trials, specifically poverty, due to their faith. In essence, Paul is sharing that, as one pastor puts it, the purpose of giving then is to direct itself at the saints. Sometimes it's the saints in need, and sometimes it's the saints who lead. But we are to give to meet the needs of the church, the saints, the believing community, whether their needs are physical or spiritual. Maybe we're giving so that we can provide food for their soul, as well as food for their body. See, Paul sees the Jerusalem church as part of the body of Christ and reveals that giving is one of the ways in which we serve Christ in doing, as he just said, abound in the work of the Lord, in doing this abounding work of the Lord. Our giving is a direct response to His grace rather than under the compulsion of the law. So now notice, Paul doesn't just call the Corinthian church to give. Verse one continues, as I, Paul, directed the churches in Galatia, so do you also. He's not saying one church do it. He's actually saying every single believer is to give. He's demonstrating that each believer should give to Christ's church in the fulfillment of his will. And so what we have then is him lay out this four principles of giving in response to Christ's grace as an act of service unto the Lord. That's what he's saying. Let me show you how your service and how you are to serve in your giving. The first thing he says here is on the first day of every week. So, what we see here is the first principle is weekly evaluation with an identified pattern of giving. Weekly evaluation with an identified pattern of giving. Now, in the culture, as this text was written, you were paid weekly, therefore, you gave weekly in our culture today, many are not paid weekly, but they are paid bi-weekly. They're paid every other week. Sometimes they're paid once a month. The point is here is that you are to give with an identified pattern of giving. If that's taking what your monthly income is and you give on your monthly income and you give once a month, from that monthly income, or every time you get paid on a bi weekly basis, you give from that. But there should be an identifiable pattern of giving. But the key here is is that you are evaluating it on a week to week basis. One of the things that has changed in COVID in our culture is we don't see the public collection of the saints. It's actually an area that Kelly and myself are praying through because the collection of the saints has always been a part of the gathering of worship for believers. And in part, what that gathering did was always caused us to come to a place where we weakly considered our own giving before the Lord. And many of you have had experiences where on that day, you just felt prompted by the Lord to give differently than what you had been giving. To give beyond. And the truth is, is that we are to evaluate our weekly our giving weekly. The danger of things, and I say this as one who falls into this trap as well, the danger is that when we, we just put it on EFT or we just run it through a system, the danger in that is that we forget to continue to evaluate our giving. It's like no other payment. There's no different, right? Like it's kind of like retirement going out of your paycheck. You never see it, so it doesn't affect me. The point is, is God wants us to actually take note of it. And so we should, on a weekly basis, be evaluating our giving, looking at it going, God, is what I'm giving okay? Do you want me to give more? How do you want me to do this, Lord? Lord, is there somebody that I should be giving to? Is there some other ministry I should be giving to? And so the principle here is one of weekly evaluation with an identified pattern of giving. This shouldn't be a random thing. On that first day, they were told to give. They knew exactly when they were giving. I want to encourage you. Establish... A set day in which you give every month. Don't don't say, well, I'll get to it some other day. The point of him saying weekly is it was systematic and identified. It was clear. What often happens when we just kind of let it float out there? It's like anything else. We'll get to it later. And it gets delayed, delayed, and then forgotten. You see, there should be regular evaluation of your giving and a set time following the receiving of income in which you give. And the truth is every time I have income, I'm to give to the Lord. That's what he's saying. I'm to consider it every single time. Ray Steadman says, now the principle, of course, is that they had an objective they had determined upon. They were not merely giving to nothing or everything, but they had determined that they would have a part in a specific need, and they were giving regularly to meet that need. Warren Weersby adds, if today's church members were as systematic in their giving as they are in handling their other financial matters, the work of the Lord would not suffer as it sometimes does. If you'll recall, a few years back, the Press Democrat did a report on giving in churches. They estimated that if all churchgoers who were faithful churchgoers, just from the study that was done, if all those regularly gave, at minimum 10%, it would exceed by roughly three poor, three times the amount of all of the social programs that are paid by the federal government today. That's staggering. Staggering. Now, I want to come back and I want to re-verify that number with you because I don't want to tell you that number if that number remains true. Um, but I... I remember reading that article and being dumbfounded, dumbfounded. Christ has actually provided his church with the resource to do the very ministry that we often get frustrated that other people are doing, but are we faithful to it? 1 John 3, 17 through 18 says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You see, our giving to Christ's church doesn't eliminate our responsibility to meet the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We give what God has instructed us and led us to give to his church, and When he calls us to go beyond that and give directly to those that we know have needs, we're to do that as well. I think sometimes we speak about giving. Giving is often taught of, hey, I've just done my part. I never have to think about this again. No, there is actually a giving to his church, and then there's a giving to one another within the body of Christ. The second principle then is this. In verse 2, it says, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. So every believer called to give intentionally and faithfully. Every believer called to give intentionally and faithfully. Regardless of whether you're young or old, poor or wealthy, you're called to give. You're to give out of the income you receive. Barnabas in Acts 4 gives out of his wealth. In contrast, the Macedonians gave out of their poverty in 2 Corinthians 8, one through two. When I first got married, we were living in the East Bay. I was working part-time on staff at a church and part-time for a recruiting company, and, and I remember coming in, I'm like, there is no way that I can pay rent and everything else and give. And there was about a year of my life where I didn't give. And I remember my father-in-law coming to me and actually talking to me, and he just looked at me and he said, Tim, I lived my life as a young believer, believing that I couldn't afford to give. But what I found is that I couldn't afford not to give. And it struck me right through the eyes. Who am I trusting? Am I trusting in myself or am I trusting Jesus? Jesus. And it was actually exposing an area of my heart where I was leaning on my own sufficiency and I was being lazy about thinking about whether or not God was actually going to provide. I would kind of put it off as, well, I just didn't get to it. But the truth was I was being lazy in my pursuit of Christ. See, the Greek word here says put aside" something aside, and it literally means to go past or to pass over without touching a thing. Our offering is to be set aside. When we miss a Sunday and are unable to give, we're not to touch that which has been set aside. Practically speaking, we're to make up our giving if we miss it. In the same way, we don't get ourselves into financial trouble, into debt, high debt, and then say, oh, we shouldn't give because God wants me out of debt first. No. God wanted us not in debt. And we faithfully give until we are out of debt. We don't compound the issue. I've listened to a well-known financial expert who will say that as long as you have debt, don't give beyond 10%. And what I would say is, stop, that's the law. Regardless of where you're at, your life as a servant is always about obedience. And so if you are in debt and God calls you to give more, give more and watch God provide. If you don't think you can afford it but God is leading, step forward in that faith of giving and see God provide. It doesn't mean that we go recklessly, but I've shared this story before that one of the great lessons in my life was feeling compelled to give to somebody within the body here. And when Elise and I went and talked about it, there was disbelief as to how we were going to actually pay for this on a monthly basis. That particular year, our, our kids' school bill had gone up. They were at the Christian school in Windsor. And we talked about the fact that there would be no way that we could actually give to this family and also pay for school. And so we began looking, thinking through ways to sacrifice and that afternoon, which is Sunday afternoon, we just felt compelled, we need to give to this family and let God work out the details. And we literally looked at it and said, man, we are going to be tight on a basis. So I called up that family, I drove a check over to them, and said, we'll be supporting you on a monthly basis. Lisa walks into the school the next morning, she calls me here at the office, and she says, hey, you're not going to believe this. Somebody this morning before I got here, she got there at 8.30. Somebody got there before 8.30. Somebody this morning at 8.30 walked in the office and paid off our school bill for the year. Hallelujah. That 100 bucks that we were giving was nothing to the $500 that God just took away from the kids going to the school. God does stuff like that all the time as we walk in obedience with him. Amen. And it builds our faith. I've watched each of you provide for our family in the last two years in a level of generosity. Or I can only say that it is the very presence of God. We felt loved through that giving. We've seen God through that giving. But you know what? It's emboldened us even more to do the same. It's emboldened us to put our faith completely and wholly in him. You see, the Greek word here for store up refers to a treasury. In Greek, the banks and treasuries were often in the temples. So therefore, the idea is to put your giving aside, don't touch it, and give it to the treasury or place it in the collection. That's what he's saying. Don't touch it. Mark 12, verse 43 through 44 affirms this when it says, Jesus said, he called his disciples to him, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. She gave. Amazingly. So that brings us to the third point that our giving is proportionate. Our giving is proportionate. He says, as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. It's proportionate. What does proportionate mean? It means differing amounts but equal sacrifice among believers. Differing amounts but equal sacrifice among believers. See, God gives more so that we can give more. That's what he actually says. Our world says we get more so we can spend more. We get more so we can have more. And it doesn't mean that we run away from the blessings that the Lord has, but it is to say in verse nine, excuse me, verse 10 and 11 of 2 Corinthians 9, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply, and catch this, multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. The idea is, That God gives more so that we might give more. That's the call. That we might give to the work of His church. That we might give to believers in needs. That we might give to ministries that are supported by His church. All of which are an act of service which frees the church to stand firm in a culture which is twisted and crooked, which we saw a few weeks ago in Philippians 2, and shine as bright lights. So there's key, two keys to proportionality. The first is that Malachi 3, 6-8 actually stats the standard for giving. The minimum standard for giving. It's kind of like a starting point. He says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions or offerings. And one of the, the, one of the discouragements today is that as people re- come back and say, well, grace now overrides the law, which in Scripture we would say that's true, They go, this no longer has the principle. Yet the truth is, is that throughout the Old Testament, we see the principle of 10% being applied. We also see here that in the same passage, God says, test me, see if you can outgive me. And the robbery is not just in tithes, but in offerings, in contributions. The standard has always been one of sacrificial giving. And the point is, is that 10% is the place that we begin. It's the minimum standard of giving. The second key then to proportionality is that it's sacrificial. That Paul desires that the giving is going to be substantial enough to meet the need so that there will be no collecting when I come. Paul did not want to appeal to people's emotions, but rather wanted the church to see the need and meet the need before he arrived. And this means our giving is to be sacrificial. The best way to think of sacrificial giving is that there should be a noticeable difference in your standard of living. It should cost you something. There should be a noticeable difference in the standard of living. It should cost you something. There should be something that you are giving up in order to give to the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying. Stephen Olford points out, the Lord Jesus gave himself in death and resurrection not in order to save us from sacrifice, but rather to teach us how to give ourselves and our substance in continual sacrifice. He continues Over and above this, he supplies what we need to live our normal lives the talents, time, and strength for our toil. All giving reflects the measure of our appreciation of God's prospering hand upon us. The point is this He's saying we need to look at giving as not something that we have to do, but something that we get to do as his servants. That when we look at the Lord, when the Lord calls us, rather than going, oh man, not again. Lord, do you know, do you know what my needs are? God, do you know what my wants are? Uh, Lord, I think you're kind of missing the point here. I really wanted to do this with that money. And the Lord says, hey, I'm calling you to do this. Or we look at his grace and we go, you know what? What I'm actually deserving of here is death. Apart from sin and the washing of that sin by Jesus, I deserve death. But now I get the freedom to join him in his work and in his ministry. So, Lord, whatever you want from me, it's yours. It's different in an affluent culture, isn't it? We live in a world that is constantly pursuing and consuming. The fourth principle then is this: it's to be accountable and above reproach. It says, And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredited by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. There must be accountability for the handling of. Of the giving. And then, too, care must be taken to ensure that the giving is handled in a way that is above reproach. As a church, in the receipt of that giving, there should be accountability. And it's something that you should expect. Each of you should expect that your giving is handled well that it's being dealt with by trustworthy people. And there's accountability for that giving. Paul made sure that it was they themselves who accredited the journeymen with their collection. And he himself said, if need be, if you're not sure of them, I'm happy to go with them. And so, there's a responsibility the body of Christ has too to make sure that there's accountability and the usage of that fund or that money, that handling of that money, that giving of reproach. So, what we see then are these four principles to giving an act of service before God, our worship and service before the Lord. One way. It's not to be a forgotten way, it's not to be seen as just something that we, we set on autopilot and forget. It's to be something that we consider regularly. And it's to be seen as something that we get to do as the servants of God. Not something that should be a burden to us. I want to end us with a story today. A story that Alan Redpath shares in his book, The Royal Route to Heaven. She says, a certain Christian once said to a friend, our church costs too much. They're always asking for money. Her friend replied in his fashion, some time ago, a little boy was born in our home. He cost us a lot of money from the very beginning. He had a big appetite. He needed clothes, medicine, toys, and even a puppy. Then he went to school, and that cost a lot more. Later, he went to college. Then he began dating, and that cost a small fortune. But in his senior year at college, he died. And since the funeral, he hasn't cost us a penny. Now, which situation do you think we'd rather have? After a significant pause, the friend continued, as long as this church lives, it will cost. When it dies for want of support, it won't cost us anything. A church has the most vital message for all the world today. Therefore, I'm going to give and pray with everything I have to keep our church alive. Stephen Olford continues, taking this truth seriously will make great demands on us. Before we refuse to bow to the word of God, let us remember that this is the price of keeping our church alive, and she must live if the Savior is to be glorified and the world is to be evangelized. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the wonderful gift of your service in giving. May we see giving not as a have to, but as a get to. And Lord, may we see that in so doing, we partner as your servants in the work of your ministry. May we be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in your work. And may your word go forth with power today. May your love be known to a world in desperate need of your loving joy. And we ask this in your name. Amen.